Mark chapter 12, picking up where we left off last week, Mark chapter 12, our scripture reading is going to be verses 35, 36, and 37, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation, Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this morning we would pray that that same Holy Spirit who inspired David in his writing of Psalm 110 would be your spirit that would illuminate our own hearts and minds to an understanding of your word. Our Father, give us believing hearts and give us hearts that find their true center in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We would pray that uh, as we listen, our listening ears would be worshipful toward Jesus and that our hearts would be receptive and obedient to all that Jesus would desire of us. That we might be disciples who bear much fruit, who bring glory to you, Father, by how we live, and that our witness to this world would be that of salt and light, as you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as Mark presents this next episode that occurs during the last week of Jesus' life, it is still Tuesday. So much of what we read in this last week, happens on Tuesday, the day after Jesus cleanses the temple. But also in the previous story, the immediately previous story, in the midst of all the challenges that Jesus faced from the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, in the midst of all of that, there was that one scribe who came with a rather sincere question, a most important question, asking, what is the greatest commandment? That is, what is the highest, most important, most necessary duty that any person could have before God. And now we come to the very next passage uh, where Jesus himself takes the opportunity uh, more or less to raise a question and to raise a challenge. So there seems to be kind of a pause, a kind of a, an interlude and in, in all of those who are coming up against him. And so he poses a question. It's a question that comes out of Psalm 110 and it's all about the Messiah's relationship to David. And so Jesus is going to quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, this is David writing, So the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the focus of our story this morning, or the focus, our focus on this story, is going to be on that particular text, what Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. It applies to Jesus. But the scribe listening to Jesus didn't see this. None of the scribes or Pharisees understood this. None of the disciples at that particular point 
understood this. They didn't understand this until after Jesus was resurrected. But it's in this text that I want us to see what Israel needed to see during Jesus' day and what all of the world needs to see today and what we as followers need to see, followers of Jesus, basically this. God has made his own son, Jesus, the center of all and everything that God is doing in heaven and on earth. And this is why Jesus must be the center of our faith and lives. Who Jesus is, what Jesus does, is the central foundation for who we are and what we do with our lives, both now and for all eternity. It's all about Christ. Psalm 110, verse 1, exalts Christ, lifts up Christ, proclaims to us that Christ is the very center of our faith because God has made his son to be the very center of our faith. Now, the passage itself presents this in three ways as we look at Psalm 110, verse 1 in particular, how God has made his son the center of everything. First, in regard to how God ordained David's son to be David's Lord. Secondly, how God exalted Christ to his own right hand. And then finally, how God himself subdues all of Christ's enemies. So we're going to look at those three ideas as we find them in the passage that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. Well, first... God prophetically ordained that the son of David would be the Lord of David. Now, this is a historical puzzle that Jesus raises while he's teaching there in the temple. So verse 35 can be paraphrased, restated this way. How can the scribes teach that the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, is the son of David, one of David's descendants, while, in contrast, David himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls him his Lord. How is it possible for the Messiah to be both the son of David and the Lord of David? That's the puzzle that Jesus raises. How can the Messiah be both? You see, here's the issue that was recognized by everyone in Israel's day, in, in Jesus' day. The Jewish audience understood this. And that all of the days of Israel's kings, every Jew had two lords. The Lord God and the Lord who was the king. But the king, such as David, had only one lord, the Lord God. But David, in this psalm, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is recording a conversation that occurs between the Lord God and one that David calls my Lord. Who could possibly be David's Lord except the Lord God? How is it that David has two lords, so to speak? Who is this second Lord that David calls my Lord? So the puzzle is... is, is, is is actually presented because of the nature of Old Testament prophecy. You know, besides this psalm, 
which in fact is, is really unique in terms of what it says. You have all of these other Psalms of the Old Testament that specifically teach, even as the scribes faithfully taught, that the Messiah was going to be the son or the descendant of David. Now, many of these are well known. Um, it's our custom to rehearse those during the Advent season to look at prophecy, the prophecy of the coming Messiah, coming of Christ. And so, for instance, we would read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the child and the son to be born with these lofty divine names would be a descendant of David and would sit on David's throne. But most of the scribes only understood this in spite of the lofty divine titles, only understood this as a merely human Messiah. They couldn't embrace the idea that the Messiah could be divine, that the Messiah could be anything in terms of being God because of the Shema, which we looked at last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It is interesting, isn't it, that Mark takes the previous episode being the two greatest commandments in which Jesus correctly recites the Shema, the oneness of God, but then Jesus now poses this, this puzzling picture where David has to recognize there's not only the Lord God, but a second Lord as well. So the question that Jesus is posing is how is it the case that a descendant of David, even the Messiah, could also be David's Lord. Now, of course, we have the 2020 perspective, the insight from the rest of the New Testament. We know that the puzzle is properly resolved because Jesus is both God and man. He is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, we understand how Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh while also being the eternal son. In fact, that's how the Apostle Paul begins his, his, his gospel, his letter to the book, to the, to the Romans. And the book of Romans starts this way. Paul declares himself to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. But this insight, this understanding, was, was far beyond what the scribes could understand, and even, even much more than the disciples could ever understand, until after the resurrection of Christ. So there was no answer for this puzzle. How could the Christ be both the son of David and the Lord of David. Now, it's interesting. As we look at what Jesus does here in this passage, Jesus does not answer the question he raises. He doesn't answer 
the question which he raises. He leaves it an open question. In a sense, it's a challenge for those who are listening to even think more deeply about these kinds of things. Practical application. Many times we oversell the gospel in people we're talking to. And what I mean by that is many times as we're talking to someone and we see some spiritual interest, we will answer questions they're not asking. If you study the evangelistic methodology of Jesus, the encounters he has with people, he will often leave them at the edge of a full explanation. If, if, if it's the wisdom of Christ as the most able teacher and evangelist ever, if it's the wisdom of Christ to leave people hungry and hungry for more, if it's the wisdom of Christ to leave people thirsty and thirsty for more, if it's the wisdom of Christ to raise questions and not answer them in order to challenge them to think more deeply about things, then you and I ought not to think that we can have a better method by making sure that every time we talk to someone, we get through every single point of the gospel. We should trust the sovereignty of God in salvation as much as Jesus did. That God does his work. And it's God who does his work. And there are times in which we need to season our conversations with salt, which, of course, leads people, leaves people thirsty. To leave them with a question. To cause them to think. To have the Spirit work on their hearts. Knowing that in God's good timing, He will bring them to ask another question to which we may then have the privilege of opening up the fullness of the mysteries of the Gospel. Well, Jesus leaves the question unanswered at this point. However, it's the case that seven weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, the answer is going to be given. The Apostle Peter is going to stand on that day and proclaim to thousands of Jews the answer to this puzzle. So if you look at Acts chapter 2, that long speech, dropping in at verse 29, we read what the Apostle Peter has to say. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. <clears throat> this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all <clears throat> and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make the enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. So here is the answer to the puzzle. Historically, the promise that God made to King David was that upon his throne, which would be an everlasting throne, the Messiah would sit and reign. The Messiah was to be David's son for sure. Jesus was born of the house and lineage of David, so he was David's son. But at the same time, the Old Testament had spoken about David's throne and described it as the throne of the Lord. In fact, when Solomon ascended to the throne of David, we're told in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 23, that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father, David. The throne of David was actually destined to be the throne at God's right hand upon which the Messiah would sit. And that's the prophecy that's given in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Specifically, verse 14, it is said about the coming Messiah that he would be given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, ordained to be the Messiah, the Christ, would be the ruler over all the kings and kingdoms of the earth with a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And this makes the Christ to be David's Lord. And so Peter declares... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, although the Old Testament presented and predicted everything needed to solve this puzzle, it was not until Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecies, until he died and rose again, until he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, until he sent the Holy Spirit, that the people of God began to understand how it all fit together. And now the full meaning is this. God has ordained his eternal son. The word became flesh, Jesus, crucified for our sins to be our redeemer and our Lord. Jesus is the center of everything that God ever did in the history of Israel as well as the center to everything that God has ever done in the history of the world. Jesus would not only be the Lord and King over Israel, but the Lord and King over all of the earth. When the promise was made to Abraham 4,000 years ago, that in you and in your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed, that fulfillment was Jesus. Now, this is why Jesus is, must be, always the center of our faith and the Lord over our lives. Jesus is the cornerstone. There's no true religious faith in God outside of what God has done in his son. It is the father's own purpose for us as Christians to rest and to trust in the person of Jesus and in the work of Jesus for everything. It is because of God himself that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption 
so that as is it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now the second way this passage uh, leads us to understand that God has made his son the center of everything is the exaltation to the Father's right hand. David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, presents what God said to David's Lord. Sit at my right hand. Now, consider this. It was God's ordained purpose for Christ to sit at God's right hand. Now, that also, in and of itself, places Jesus at the very center of our faith. Clearly, the throne of God is the very center of a Christian's faith, and that is exactly where Jesus is. Now, that teaching occurs in a very explicit manner no less than ten times in the New Testament, with numerous other allusions to this fact of where Jesus sits. When we look at these, we see three very significant themes emerging. And the first is this. Sitting at the Father's right hand is the place and position of all power and all authority that Jesus has. During his trial, before the high priest, when the high priest places Jesus under oath and demands to know who Jesus is, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus replies, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now here is Jesus putting together those two passages. Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Peter states this position of power and authority this way in 1 Peter 3. Jesus, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And, and Paul teaches this power and authority of Christ at the right hand of God in, in several passages, but there are two that are especially notable. Ephesians chapter 1, 19 to 21. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. Then probably... No passage emphasizes the exaltation of Jesus more clearly, more highly than that passage in Philippians 2, which talks about the humiliation of Christ and then his exaltation. So chapter 2, 9 through 11, this passage teaches that God has designated Jesus to be the Lord of all. Quoting, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here's the point. 
Jesus is exalted to demonstrate that he has all power, all authority over all things and all of creation for all of time and for all of eternity. Christ is the center of what God the Father did, is doing, and will do. Your Savior has all of the power and authority to do for you whatever is truly for your present and eternal good. That's why Jesus is the center of your faith. Now, the second theme that we find in this seated at the right hand is connected to the finished work of Christ, the finished work of the cross. This is mentioned a number of times in different places in the New Testament, but, but three very pregnant passages in the book of Hebrews presents this connection very, very strongly. First chapter, Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God raises Jesus to his right hand to honor him for the perfection of, of his redemptive work, the complete and sufficient work that Jesus did upon the cross, which came at the cost of the most incredible kind of suffering and dying as he carried our sins in his body upon the, tr- upon the cross. That Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, demonstrates proves that his atoning death was fully sufficient for all of our sins. And then the third thing concerning Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. And and this, this focuses upon the continuing ministry of Jesus as our great high priest. It's also one of the dominant themes in the book of Hebrews but of particular importance is that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the right hand of the majesty on high, the right hand of the Father, in order to make priestly intercession for those whom he has redeemed. Again, looking in the book of Hebrews, we can see several passages that connect to this idea, that speak to Jesus interceding for his people. Begin with Hebrews 7. 16, Jesus has, quote, become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And then jumping to verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
And then that leads to chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And all of that establishes the basis for what was actually written earlier in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has this continuing ministry seated at the right hand of God on the throne of grace, interceding for us so that we receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. It is to this throne that you and I as believers are invited to draw near. And likewise, Paul then says, Romans 8, verse 1 and then verse 34. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The finished work of Christ establishes there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, it's no secret that Christians struggle with feelings of condemnation. Feeling guilty, feeling shame, feeling inadequate, feeling like we are failures. And Satan uses those feelings to paralyze us and to neutralize our gifts and abilities to serve one another in love. This is why we need to know that Christ is the center of all that God the Father is doing in our lives. For Jesus ever lives above for you to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead, to declare to you, you are not condemned. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are holy and blameless in his sight. You are loved with an everlasting love so that the prophet Zephaniah has declared, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Jesus, the center of your faith because he sits at the Father's right hand. Having finished his work, having all power and authority, interceding for you at all times. The third way that God has made his son the center of everything is that God seduces 
all of the enemies of Christ. As the psalm reads, until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, here's the picture of what God the Father says to his son, the Messiah. Sit here in this place of honor and authority and power. Sit here, for you have made a full atonement for the sins of your people. Sit here, making intercession for them as you plead your great work on their behalf. Sit while I subdue all of your enemies. Sit while I bring them all to bow their knee before the great name of Jesus. For this brings the Father the greatest glory. So the statement's a promise. God will do this. God will conquer all of the enemies of Christ. And that's why Jesus can say with such great confidence, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But this is also God's great gift to us as believers. For when God conquers all the enemies of His Son, He conquers all of our enemies as well. And that is why Paul can say so confidently, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's why Paul can also speak so personally and so confidently. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. This is what we learn from this passage. God has made His own Son the center of everything that God is doing on heaven and earth. This is why Jesus must be the center of our faith and the center of our lives. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, is the central foundation of who we are and what we are to do with our lives now and forever. So, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Amen. Oh, Father, may your Holy Spirit always cause us to keep looking up and seeing Jesus at your right hand and to know that, Father, you have made Jesus everything and always, for all time and eternity, for us, that in loving Jesus and glorifying Christ, we bring you the greatest glory. In your name, amen.